I think there is some level of insanity in anybody who thinks they can change global large-scale systems. There's a belief that you can do it where many others have failed. Uh, and I think that's a prerequisite, right? Because if you believe you can't, then you're never going to try. And so you have to have some of that level of uh, naivete. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Peter, so it's so good to see you again. I, I love how casual this interview is. For those of you who are listening, one of the things you can always count on on these, these calls is that you get to meet these legendary figures in their natural state. And I guess this is your natural state, Peter. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's late at night here in Los Angeles, um, and uh, I'm at home. Uh, and just relaxed and, and enjoying a, a chance to chat with a friend. Peter, so quick question for you. I always start every interview like this. What gets you out of bed every morning? So a lot of things. First, right now, my four-year-old boy is getting me out of bed. <laughs> I have uh, I have two four-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old uh, uh, fraternal twin boys. So that's the start of the morning when I'm in town, which I is unfortunately a little too, too rare. But uh, I... I'm a kid in a candy store. I'm living my dreams, pursuing the passions that I have um, with the companies that I'm doing. And I think we live during the most extraordinary time ever in human history, a time where we can make uh, any of our dreams come true, a time where we can go after you know, the world's biggest challenges. Uh, and for me, part of that, you know, my two, three biggest themes right now driving me are opening up space, passions in my childhood. Uh, extending the healthy human lifespan, uh, and then attacking the world's grand challenges. What are the biggest problems on the planet that we can fix uh, and create incredible abundance and wealth in the world? So those those things are my organizing principles, if you would. I love that. I love the idea of organizing principles. Also, I love the fact that your organizing principles are so dramatically huge, opening up space <laughs> and extending human lifespan. So... And that really leads to the first question, Peter. What is it that is that you think is different about men like you, men like Elon Musk, like Larry Page, that make you see visions and ideas and goals for humanity that most people would immediately dismiss? I think it's the it's the fact that most people uh, have a failure or two and then get beaten down and don't want to take a risk again, uh, and. You know, I think maybe I was lucky in my first organization ever. Uh, was it? And when I was a sophomore at MIT, I started a group called SED, Students of Exploration and Development of Space, uh, which grew into a uh, a national and an international college space organization. We had a uh, hundred chapters around the world. And for me, as a sophomore, age you know nineteen, uh, this was an amazing success. And um, that. You know, relatively speaking to today, it was a small success, but it, the idea that that could happen, and that got me addicted to the idea that you could, in fact, have a great success. Uh, and so that, and then when going on from there to create your National Space University, and then, heck, you know, it was like, wow, if you can do these things, imagine what you, you know, what couldn't you do? Um, so I think uh, people who had had early failures and maybe got beaten down uh, didn't have a chance to, you know, try again. And of course, the chances are, you know, you can be lucky and you can be intelligent and you can be good. But sometimes luck is an important part of it. Uh, I think uh, you've got 
you know, if Google had failed, would Larry Page have been where he is? Maybe it was his intelligence and his, um, you know, and his perseverance that got it to succeed or for, for Elon, PayPal, whatever the case might be. But I'll tell you that uh, it's perseverance. Um, it is having a, a heartfelt passion that is, uh, that sort of is, is emotionally driven passion. Right, something that you want to solve on the planet because you're so excited about it because it wakes you up in the morning. And for me, my hook was spaceflight as a child. It was Apollo, it was Star Trek. For other people, it might be something they despise, or, um, injustice in the world that they want to solve. But it's like something emotional that wakes you up in the morning, keeps you going at night. And I know that um, uh, a lot of times, doing anything big and bold in the world is hard unless you've got that emotional guiding star, that passion. When you get tired at three o'clock in the morning, and if you give up, if that's not there to reinvigorate you, um, then most people fail by giving up, not because you know something stops them. These things are hard objectives, so it's a mix of all of these things, and we probably you know could tease out four or five from that list. But but there's still something unique about what you did. Okay, so you're obsessed with space. You're a trackie, and love the idea of space and someday being an astronaut. But most people, even if they were obsessed with space, their dream would be, okay, maybe I'll get a job at NASA. Mm -hmm. In yeah. your case, you started Space University. You started XPRIZE. You helped privatize space travel. You opened up a billion-dollar industry. Surely there's something you're seeing, or you're insane, but, yeah. but there's something in your head that thinks differently. That's what I'm so, trying to figure out. Okay, so, so let's, let's dive in there. So... Um, I think there is some level of insanity in anybody who thinks they can change global large-scale systems. There's a belief that you can do it where many others have failed. Uh, and I think that's a prerequisite, right? Because if you believe you can't, then you're never going to try. And so you have to have some of that level of uh, naivete. You know, I'll I'll come back to space in one second. I, I had the chance. I was with uh, Elon Musk, who's one of my investors, one of my companies, and, and a trustee of the XPRIZE. I was with him in Sicily last year, uh, last summer. And I remember in Tesla, he tells the story, I'm not sure how much it's publicly known, but when they started Tesla, they depended upon having the, uh, the batteries from A123 and having the body uh, from Lotus. And that was what convinced them to go after that. They thought it was doable given those two systems, but it turned out, that the batteries didn't work and the and the body wasn't going to cut it. It had to be significantly modified. And, you know, had they known that they'd have to develop the batteries and develop the body, they would have never gone into it. So there's this level of, of um, naivete that allows a person to get in and then this persistence and passion that causes them to keep going. It's like burning your boats, right? The old saying of like, you know, you know, burn the boat so you don't turn back. And for me in space, one of the things, so I, I drank the Kool-Aid from Star Trek and Apollo. I was like, you know, this, this believer that, of course, we've gotten the moon. We're, you know, look at Star Trek, look at all this stuff. Of course, we're going to go. We're going to make all this stuff happen. And then as I grew older and got to meet a lot of the astronauts and got to see what NASA was doing, the realization was, uh-oh, that isn't going to happen that way. And there was this moment of choice, which was give up on the dream and maybe have a one in a thousand chance of becoming an astronaut or choose another path and just say, 
I'm just going to do it myself. I don't care how long it takes, how hard it's going to be. I believe in this and it's my passion and it's worth it for me to go and do that. So that's the case. Um, it was a belief, uh, a naive belief that this can't be too hard. And it was, uh, you know, leading to International Space University and the X Prize and Zero Gravity Corporation. We do parabolic flights and now planetary resources. We just, you know, had the United States president sign into law a law that allows for the ownership of private asteroidal materials to be able to own it and sell it. I mean, so this is all insane stuff. Wow. So one more thing about one more thing about you, okay, which I've always been curious about. So I've known Peter for about three years. I'm on the innovation board for the X Prize. So at least twice a year, I see Peter at meetings and trips and stuff. And one thing about you that I find really interesting is you're able to start multiple companies. In fact, there's a you have a series of laws called Peter's Law. And my favorite Peter's Law, because it makes me justify my own ADD, <laughs> is multiple projects lead to multiple successes. I want to talk about that for a moment. The other part of that uh, vision is, you know, when given a choice, take both. Right. So, uh, but, but where do you draw the line? Okay, so you start XPRIZE, and I'm sure if you focused 100% on it, you could scale that. And then you started yeah. Planetary Resources. And then I know you are now working with extending the human lifespan. How many companies are you involved in right now? as a founder? Oh, God, uh, a lot. Um, actively engaged in managing five right now. And uh, another five where I'm a board member or, you know, still involved in it, but less engaged in the operations of it. And I think the all, so first of all, to be clear, to do something well does require laser-like focus. And it's knowing what you're good at. And I'm really great at the startup phase. I'm really great at the conceptualization. I'm really great at the conceptualization of it, uh, the bringing together of a team, um, and the, uh, I would say, the capitalization of it. And then what I typically have done is found a great CEO or a great president. And then I take on the role of an executive chairman. Uh, and my goal is to make sure that the long-term vision course and it's heading right. And um, But the day-to-day -day management of the details isn't what I, what I do and do well. So uh, it's knowing what your unique capabilities are, it's knowing what you're passionate about and really finding great talent to work with. Because, you know, it's really hard to be CEO of multiple organizations. I think you can be CEO of one organization really well and then being a uh, sort of a founder guiding spirit of, of a, multi, uh, a number of them. And it's really nice when they have a common theme. So, you know, Singularity University and XPRIZE and even PRI, Planetary Resources and Human Longevity and my Abundance 360 program and Bold Capital Partners, my venture fund, all those things are all tied to, you know, exponential technologies taking on moonshots or billion person problems. And so there's a commonality. Of, I'm not going and starting a hotel or starting a publishing company or something like that. They're, they're, they're related in that regard. But ultimately, it's, uh, it's these are the things that wake me up in the morning and get me excited and drive my passion and I love it and there's a re refreshedness if you would I'm not sure that's a word going from like one challenge to another but moving them forward requires me you know I will go heads down for two months making sure X Prize you know um, fills its innovation board and let me just say in front of everybody watching 
thank you, Vishen, for your amazing support in the XPRIZE Foundation. Very grateful for you being one of our innovation board members and a, and a great one at that. So, Thank you. Yeah, uh, Peter, I'm just going to mention your book, okay, because it's one of my favorite books of, of uh, when was it published? Abundance, 2013? Uh, 2012. 2012. It was my favorite book of the year, genuinely my favorite damn book of the year. And I'm going to ask Peter a question why later. The book Abundance opens you up to a whole new model of reality that the world is headed to a happier, greater, insanely beautiful place. And we get to play in that. We get to be part of that. And it's not about the crap that you watch on the media networks. Um, so that book implants in you a model of reality that I think once you get installed, you start to see opportunity the way people like Peter do. Um, so Peter, that leads to the question. I'd love for you to talk for a moment about, because I know this is your passion, about yeah. the idea of abundance. And uh, one more thing you said you wanted to share in this interview is why we need to turn off the media. Yeah. So I guess, um, you know, one of the questions that I've heard you ask is, what do you believe that most other people don't? Um, and two ideas there. Um, the first is that you don't have to watch the news. Uh, I think that uh, I want to give people a different perspective here, which is I don't watch the television news. I don't read the newspapers. I get my news uh, filtered through Google News where I can search for the subjects and I can get very quickly the few things that I need that are relevant to me. I've got uh, filters that, you know, if any of my companies or any of the areas of, of interest uh, come up, those stories come to me directly. So here's the situation. We're living in a world today where the news media is a drug pusher and negative news is their drug. And in every device that you have, the news media is pushing into your tablet, your TV, your radio, your laptop, negative news from every corner of the world. Every murder, every problem on the planet is being you know, filmed in high definition and delivered to your laptop and into your living room over and over and over and over again. And the reason is that we as humans, um, we pay 10 times more attention to negative news than positive news. And that's because of an evolutionary development in so we were evolving on the savannas of Africa hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. If you missed a piece of good news like some food over there, well, that's too bad you missed it. You missed a piece of negative news like a, you know, a squiggle on the ground is a snake and not a stick. Your genes were out of the gene pool. And so we've evolved an ancient piece of our temporal lobe called the amygdala that scans everything we see and everything we hear for negative news. And when it detects it, it is, you know, you're put on red alert. And the old saying is, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, and so for that reason, we pay far more attention to negative news. And that's why the newspaper and the television has got 10 times the negative news. You know, open up the paper tomorrow and just flip through the pages and you'll see that. And the question is, is that the way the world truly is? And I'm not saying that those things aren't going on in the world. It's just disproportionate, Right. Um, you don't have reporters standing in front of airports and saying, today there was no crashes at this airport today, <laughs> or today there was no school shootings at the school today. They're only reporting the negative issues. And the fact of the matter is we have orders of magnitude, much better news going on in the world. It's just good news networks don't succeed. They fail. Um, and if you watch the TV news over and over and over and over and over again, you're going to get this negative mindset which is just going to make you feel like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and why would you ever want to invest and so forth. But by almost every measure we have, the world is getting extraordinarily better. 
right? Over the last hundred years, to use that time span, uh, which we can all, you know, we've all read about and think about in our history books, uh, the human lifespan has more than doubled. You know, I'll talk about in a little bit how we're going to double it again. Um, the per capita income for every nation on this planet has more than tripled. Uh, we're living in a world where we've gone from, you know, 99.9% extreme poverty to less than 1% extreme poverty on the planet. Um, uh, Steven Pinker, who wrote a great book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, a professor at Harvard, a friend of mine, shows us we're living during the most peaceful time ever in human history. Your chance of dialing, dying a violent death at one five hundredth of what they used to be just, you know, uh, centuries ago. Uh, the cost of food has dropped 13-fold. The cost of energy has dropped 20-fold. Transportation, 100-fold. Communications, thousands of fold. And so by almost every measure we have, the world has gotten extraordinarily better. And it's not because we're smarter or have better politicians. It's the impact of technology. Technology is that thing which takes what used to be scarce and makes it abundant over and over and over again. And we can talk about that if you want. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you see on the horizon that's going to be entering our world that radically excite you and should excite us? Yeah. So, I mean, many, many, many things. I think uh, it's hard to fathom um, how fast things are changing and are about to change. Um, I just got my upgraded Tesla Model S, my, uh, my uh, P85D that has autopilot on it. And so I now have an autonomous car, right? And this car will drive down the street, hands off, auto brake, auto accelerate, stay in the lanes, you know, and it's, it's amazing. It's, you know, it's here. We have, we have autonomous cars now, not fully, but you know, 95% of my commute is now autonomous, which is pretty cool. We're living in a world where artificial intelligence and virtual reality is going to change everything, not in 10 years, not in five years, in the next three years. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that artificial intelligence is going to provide us a planet where every single person has access to the best health care. Because best health care doesn't come from a Harvard-trained professional doctor who spent $200,000 in education. It comes from a piece of software whose cost of operating that software is effectively free, right? Just like the poorest child in Mumbai on a smartphone has access to the world's information on Google, uh, has access to two-way video Skype like we have for free, right? This would have cost us 20 years ago hundreds of thousands of dollars if we could have even had the equipment to do it. Today, anybody can do this. Uh, AI is going to provide the best education in the world, right? Where the education of a the son of a billionaire or the daughter of the poorest child on the uh, family of the planet will have equal education because that education won't be a human, won't be a school. It'll be an AI providing that at scale to everybody. So imagine a world where the best healthcare is available for everybody. The best education is available for everybody. I mean, this is where we're heading uh, at lightning speed. Free internet globally. Free internet globally. We've got uh, five systems. You've got uh, Google Loon. You've got internet.org from Facebook. You've got um, uh, OneWeb from Richard Branson and Paul Jacobs. You've got uh, Elon's 4000 satellite constellation. You've got a few other systems being deployed that will provide a megabit per second to everybody on the planet. You know, this isn't like you and I coming online with 9600 baud and, they, you know, for me, it was America Online, AOL, for others, you know, the, the equivalent thereof. 
it's coming online with a megabit with access to the world's information. And when that tablet uh, gets down cheap enough, and you know, I've seen the designs for $10 tablets like you have, people are going to give them away for free. Why? Because if you don't have a tablet, I can't sell you anything. So here's a tablet. Just, you know, use my website to buy stuff. Even if all you make is, you know, 20 bucks, you know, a day, that's fine. Here's a free tablet or 20 bucks a week. And, and that's so exciting to me because that opens up a whole new method of learning to like kids all around the world, free tablets and free internet. Now you mentioned lifespan. You're working right now on a project to extend human lifespan. What do we have to keep in mind regarding our lifespans? What is that going to look like? Yeah, so it's a great question, uh, and I'm very passionate about this. The company is called Human Longevity Inc. HLI. Uh, it was co-founded with um, two brilliant partners, uh, Craig Venter, who sequenced the first human genome, uh, created the first synthetic life form on the genomic side, and then Bob Hariri. Uh, Bob's an MD, PhD, um, top stem cell scientist on the planet, uh, started banking stem cells. Uh, from newborns, um, and then developing cellular therapeutics where giving person a dose of stem cells becomes a therapeutic uh, uh, treatment. And the realization is that uh, today, um, you know, the average human lifespan for all of human history was about uh, mid-20s, 26 to 20 years old. You would have a baby at age 13, uh, and then you would bring that baby when you entered puberty, and then you would bring that baby up from age 13 to age, you know, from birth to age 13, by which time you were age 26. And at that point, your baby was having a baby. And the only decent thing you could do is sort of like, you know, die and give your bits back to the environment. So you were not taking food out of the grandchildren of your tribe. But we ended up in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, 1800s early 1900s, created germ theory and sanitation. And we doubled the lifespan into the 50s. And then started looking at cardiac disease, and we now have a lifespan into the 70s and even early 80s. Our belief is that uh, we're going to nail cancer this next decade, uh, that we're then going to attack, uh, attack neurodegenerative disease, and that we have the ability to really extend the human lifespan well past 100. And our mission is, how do you make 100 years old and you're 60? So what are we doing? Um, as a company, we have built the world's largest genome sequencing facility. Uh, so we now bring our patients into our health nucleus. Um, we've just opened this up. We're, we've opened up, um, it's in La Jolla. Uh, we'll be opening up um, one in London, uh, one either in, in Kuala Lumpur or in Singapore, um, probably one in India, uh, probably in UAE. And when you come into this health nucleus, uh, we are we sequence your full genome, all 3.2 billion letters of your that code for you is your software. It's what runs your life. It's what predicts your medical future. We also sequence your microbiome. Uh, you're a collection of 10 trillion human cells. You're also a collection of 100 trillion bacterial cells. Um, we uh, then measure the 2,300 chemicals in your bloodstream, call your metabolome. We then do a full body MRI of your of yourself we then do a whole set of executive physicals echocardiogram uh carotid coronary all of that all of that data gets put into an integrated database and then we use machine learning on top of that to do an analysis of that and we're able to then understand you in context in context to everybody else in the first 100 people we put through our health nucleus uh 
we have discovered life-saving discoveries in uh, a little over a little over a quarter of them. Incredible. Yeah. How how soon do you think this type of technology is going to be accessible to people? Um, well, it's we're just now beginning to roll out the health nucleus for anybody who can afford it. It's twenty five k as an initiation uh, coming on board, and then you have it's just it's a day long in San Diego. Um, but these are things that will be duplicated over in countries around the world and the prices will come down, but it's about a level of care that has not existed because the paradigm for health has always been, you know, live your life, maybe have a, a physical, which is pretty mediocre, uh, by comparison. And if something comes down, you then show up at the hospital, you show up at your, at your physician. But by that time, you know, stuff has gone pretty bad for you to have uh, conditions at that point. So this is about how do we actually continually evaluate and scan your body so that we identify anything at the earliest possible stage where it's completely preventative at that point. You know, identify cancer at a two millimeter size before it you know, is ever anything more than that. that. That's incredible. And thanks to you, um, you, you took a group of us to a company called Illumina. I now have my entire DNA on a USB yeah. drive. Uh, and an app that has showed me already things that I need to look out for. Um, and it is so incredible. Is like, so we also scanned your brain, I believe, when we did that. So this is uh, just the beginning. But what we do now, if if you are coming through the health nucleus vision, which I invite you to do, um, is all of this now is a lot more. There's a machine learning to actually understand what, what it all means. Um, and uh, at a much higher level. Uh, and also predicting uh, what's likely to happen so that we actually, you know, you have no um, no chance of this, this, or this. But these areas we're going to watch and evaluate because this will eventually happen to you. How do we catch it early enough to actually prevent it? I love it. That is so exciting, Peter. I'm already rethinking the entire way I plan my life. I used to, growing up, um, because of what I observed in the world around me, I always believed that I would... You know, I, I plan my life until 75. Now I'm extending it to 100. And I'm realizing it's probably going to go off to 120 to 150. Listen, here, here's the reality, right? Um, it's, as my friend Ray Kurzweil says, it's learning to live long enough to live forever. There is a point, the term he uses, which I love, is, is longevity escape velocity, which is the longer you live, there's a point at which you live long enough where the technology is going to allow us to live as long as we want to. So I used to, when I was in medical school years ago, I randomly set a age target of 700 years which is a ridiculous number because if you can live a couple hundred years, you can live forever. Um, and you know, we are simply um, a program. We are running a cellular program on DNA that runs the mechanisms of our cells. And our cells undergo changes over time, our stem cells, which are a regenerative engine. So by the way, half of HLI is a genomics business. Other part of the business is a stem cell business. And stem cells are going to be a mechanism by which we can uh, rejuvenate ourselves constantly, repair our bodies, uh, and extend the healthy human lifespan. So, um, you know, ultimately, we are born with a certain number of stem cells. Uh, those stem cells are constantly going through our bodies, repairing what's going on. Our immune system, we're constantly producing cancers that our immune systems go and find and kill. And um, so what happens over time, though, is that you lose your regenerative stem cell population, or it undergoes epigenetic changes, so it mutates, becomes senile. 
or your immune system becomes lax and doesn't pick up. So it's how do we actually uh, bring your body back to its youthful state so that you can continuously repair yourself and find those cancers and repair them. You know, immuno-oncology is the field right now focused on that. All of this stuff is just exploding on the scene, like right now, right? These new technologies called uh, CRISPR-Cas9 that is a new technology for actually editing your DNA in your own body. You know, it's insane. So really exciting stuff. I, I can see how passionate you are about this. I cannot wait to see where you're going to go in this whole new field for you. Space and now human lifespan. I want to ask you a couple of questions going back yeah. to how Peter thinks, how you think. There were a couple of laws on Peter's laws that I wanted to have you explain further to us. Sure. One is when forced to compromise, ask for more. And the other is if you can't beat them, join them, then beat them. <laughs> so when forced to compromise, ask for more um, is I want you to imagine the following situation. If you're going down a path uh, inside of a company um, and you're being forced to constantly compromise. Uh, you may be in a system that will never make you happy because the people you're working with, the company you're in, the place you live, whatever it is, is never going to allow you to fulfill your goals. And you have to make a choice at some point of whether you're willing to live with that. But there is the possibility that if you step outside of that system, ask for more in this regard, that you can find a different situation, a different population, a different uh, job, a different circumstance that you can actually live your life to much higher uh, expectations. So we all get comfortable. We all find ourselves in situations that, you know, this is the best it's going to be. But is that really the case? Or is that just what's comfortable for you right now. Wow, I love that. I, I never really understood the depth of that s phrase until you just explained it. Now there's one more. If you can't beat them, join them, then beat them. So um, this is a matter of, uh, and you can take it many different ways, but one of them is the way I think about this is if you're in a situation where you're uh, trying to change how a system works, and I look at, I've, I've played this in multiple different ways. Uh, one is to try and actually collapse the system and just destroy it, you know, and uh, there are a couple of laws that deal with that. But another way is how do you get in there uh, and actually beat them by getting them to completely change the way they think. It's like the virus that goes into a cell and takes over the replicative mechanism. That's how a virus works, right? It enters a cell, it takes over the DNA, and it actually uh, uses the, uh, uh, the ribosomes and the um, cellular machinery to replicate the virus. So it's how do you get in there and um, actually join the system? And if your ideas are strong enough and passionate enough, how do you actually uh, change it from the inside? Now, I want to go to another, to another group of, of laws on Peter's laws, which I, I absolutely love. In fact, I quoted you on this in the opening chapter of my book, and okay. it is, if you can't win, change the rules. If you can't change the rules, then ignore them. We're living in a society where the rules were typically written for someone else to, run, to win, right? If you think about it, all the rules and regulations that we have were set up in a time, could be 10 years ago, could be 100 years ago. And the people who wrote the rules were the incumbents. And they wrote the rules that suited them, and they adapted for them. And if you're trying to uh, 
actually uh, come in and transform an industry, um, those rules were not are not going to be in your favor. And you actually have to go in there and change the rules. Uh, and uh, you know, for me, I've had to do that over and over again in the spaceflight industry, which were really written for the industrial military complex or written for the traditional systems. Um, but there also comes a point where if you can't change the rules, uh, your option is to sort of like hit that ceiling or to ignore them and to actually uh, cause a revolution. And we are going to be facing both of those situations as we disrupt healthcare and disrupt uh, education um, this next decade. Um, and it's, you know, any true fundamental breakthrough is going to change the rules or ultimately ignore the rules. It's just when you're doing something 10 times better, you know, you have Uber, which has changed the rules of transportation. And at some point, when you've got the government going up against them, uh, there's a battle between are they changing them or are, are they ignoring them? But if the service is 10 times better than the traditional system, eventually the traditional system will go away. And what you have happening in places like France or Europe where the president of Uber is being thrown into, into jail is you're, you, these companies, these old traditional systems are using the government as the last line of defense uh, for something that is completely transformational. And right, so we have constant revolution occurring uh, and it's going to be happening more and more with the growth of exponential technologies uh, because these kinds of technologies are going to massively disrupt existing systems and infrastructures. And uh, I think companies are going to come in and try and change the rules. And in some cases, the government, which typically governments are resistant to change, right? The role of a government is to keep things the way they are so that there's peace on the streets and people know they have their jobs next morning and all of these things. But the fact of the matter is that disruptive technology is going to fundamentally change things in a really big way. And so the rules are going to have to be changed. And then at some point, um, it's not like the technology is going to go away. And it's not like people are not going to like begin using these powerful technologies to lengthen their lives or give them free, you know, free, much better medical care or the best education on the planet. They're simply going to start ignoring them. So I think those are two truisms of what we're going to be seeing more and more. I love it because it also has so much applicability in regular life. I mean, these are words that would resonate with college students, with people going through difficult times in their career, with, with just about anyone. Could you give us an example of, say, how these two phrases might be applied in life to someone who is just, just starting out their career or just not looking to take on any industries, but just generally in life? Well, I mean, listen, we all have rules. Uh, we're rules that are written into your family. Um, you know, it's like you can imagine in some parts of the, of the world, listen, son, we were born into a strata of society where, you know, you're a laborer or you, you know, you're a teacher. You can't be a doctor. You can't go be a scientist. That's not your calling, right? That's, and so there's societal rules, um, that, uh, we live by. Uh, that we sort of accept as given. 
And sometimes we need to change those rules. We need to change that, those expectations, right? Because those rules are rules that are um, rules written by law or written by sort of accepted uh, social contract. Um, and I don't think those are true anymore to a large degree. Do you follow me in that regard? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, and, you know, if you can't change the rules and ignore them, I think is uh, is even more applicable in that arena. The person who ignores um, uh, their where they grew up or the family they were born into and goes and sets out on their own and says, I deserve better than this. I can be more than that. And they ignore what everyone thinks they should be or will be in their life. And they go and they, um, they believe in themselves. So we can accept uh, what is written. Um, but the question is, is it, tr- really, is it really true? Is it, uh, is it real? Is it appropriate? Or was it true and appropriate for past generations? And is now, you know, I find this over and over again that a lot of rules were written you know, in our governance systems, it's easy to add laws. You know, they're done all the time. When do laws ever get taken off the books? They don't. Um, uh, and I think you need, I think it's healthy. I'm not trying to sort of like, you know, push a revolution here, but I think it's healthy to always question whose rule is that? And I don't think it applies just to government laws. I think it applies to culture, to religion, to society, to, to yeah. things that our parents tell us. In your mind, what is it that triggered this, this rule-breaking streak in you? Because you question a lot. You break a lot of rules. What, yeah. what, what flipped that switch in you? Wow. So that's a great question. Uh, so I think when I was, again, growing up, you know, I was uh, very passionate about space. And NASA was the only way that you got into space. Uh, and that was sort of the accepted. And when I realized there was no way I was going to go into space on the government on government rockets, uh, I then started thinking about why does it have to be that way, right? That was one of the things that got me that got me going in that direction. There were other things. Uh, I saw my father, who grew up in a small island in Greece, where you know he was the first of his village to ever go to Athens to take a medical entry exam and to to go and become a doctor, and it was just like not expected, accepted, or whatever. But that's what he wanted to do. And he broke out of that mold and then broke out even further from this small village and the small island and ended up going to the U.S. after meeting my mother. So that was sort of a this amazing arc of his life that I saw that uh, was an inspiration uh, for me. And just, you know, being inspired by amazing people who are heroes because they didn't take no for an answer. Um, and, you know, I think the most important thing has been the passion that's fueled my life that's kept me going over and over and over again because any of the stuff that I work on, any stuff that you work on, any stuff that people who dream big listening to this work on, it's all hard. It's all impossible. It all happens because you don't give up. That, that was so eloquent, Peter. I love that. As you were saying that, uh, uh, an interesting thought occurred to me. Many people are trapped in the rules because they are following people around them. But it seems that the people you followed, your father, your friends, people like Elon Musk, you're, you're also following, but you're following the rule breakers. You're following that meme, that idea that one should question the rules. 
Yeah. So it's really, it's really the same thing. We are imitating. It's just that you found smarter models to imitate, starting with your father. Yeah. So I think that's very, very important um, vision. I think part of what your what your work and your book and uh, your teachings uh, so beautifully do, and I I love reading what you the the blogs and uh, newsletters that you put out. And it's true, right? Because these are all models. It is all possible. And um, I think ultimately one of the most important realizations are that a lot of these individuals, whether it's Elon or Richard Branson or Larry Page or any of these people, didn't start with wealth. Um, They started with a passion and they worked really hard. The other thing is the realization that your ability to experiment and to fail and to start over and to experiment and to fail and start over is what the most amazing world we live in today, that you can you can fail multiple times. And it's you fail ultimately by giving up, by not trying again. Uh, and I think that's really important uh, to see that you can emulate and replicate and experiment and try and try and try. Um, but most importantly, I think, trying areas driven by your passion, not driven by the desire to make money. Uh, And this goes back to what you said earlier when we spoke about your book, Abundance. We are living in the most abundant time in human history, in the safest time in human history. I believe you also mentioned safety. Yet, because of what we see about the world out there, people feel unsafe. And so people underestimate their safety levels, which keep them grounded and make them want to follow the rules because the rules apparently keep you safe. Yes, it's so it's easy to do that. Easy to bury your head. Easy to follow the rules. Easy to follow the pack. Um, and you know, people experiment with different parts of their lives. It may be with your children. It may be with your uh, with your wife or husband. It may be whatever. But it's just easier. But sometimes something has to move you out of that un- that zone of not being comfortable. And that something is emotion. It's emotional energy. Right, and so uh, it's that emotional energy of having a dream or a passion so big, so great that you are. It's more painful to sit still and not try, or to have a pain so great that you can't stand sitting still. Some injustice that you see, and so it's um, it's these things or some opportunities so amazing that you can't help but go after it. So ultimately, it's tying to that emotional energy. And then once you've tied to that emotional energy, it's finding um, people to replicate. I have a, a quote here that I just happened to uh, pull up um, that I have in my book. It was, uh, it was a quote from, I had Larry Page at the founding conference of Singularity University, and he got up on stage um, to speak uh, at it to talk as we were formulating what, uh, what SU would be about. And he said, um, he said, I have a very simple metric I use. He said, are you working on something that can change the world? Yes or no? The answer for 99.99999% of the people in the world is no. I think we need to be training people on how to change the world. And so that's become a clarion call for Singularity University and for myself. And it's it's taking the the blinders off people to say that you have the ability to change the world. You have the ability to do great things. What do you want to do, right? Yeah. I, I remember you hearing you speak for the first time in 2012 in Los Angeles. And you 
you shared something similar, that same idea about changing the world. And wow, it was one, it had a profound impact on me. Hearing you speak actually inspired me to go back to my home city, Kuala Lumpur, build a 150-seater auditorium, open it up to the public, and start funding free classes on entrepreneurship. I think we put 40,000 people through classes there. And then the wow. government, the government emulated the idea. And now um, we, we've not only that, but we funded and, and founded numerous meetup groups and organizations. We started Malaysia's biggest technology group. And part of it, part of that seed was your, that thing you put in my head. And you made me feel like I was playing so small in the world. And so I decided <laughs> to see if I could, like you, be a little bit ADD and continue running my company, but do something that actually had a, had, had, had a social good. Peter, in the last, last seven minutes we have, I want to ask you two additional questions. Now, the first one is, what do you think makes a person extraordinary? You know many extraordinary people. What is that trigger or that, that thing that makes someone extraordinary? Well, so they're different. So one thing that's really important is there are different dimensions of extraordinary. There are different dimensions. Uh, one dimension is, is intelligence, for sure, right? There are some really brilliant people. They just think and see and question in a different level than others. Uh, another is uh, persistence, just refusal to give up, all right? I think if I had one superpower, it'd be stubbornness or persistence. It's I, you know, you know X Prize took me 10 years to get from, from concept to getting one. Um, uh, another is just is empathy. I think empathy can be a superpower for, for people. Um, and, and just, and communication skills, the ability for a person to really have a powerful idea and communicate it in a way that inspires other people, uh, and gets them excited to, to go, uh, and, and to do, um, I mean, all of these things are, are different dimensions, if you would, uh, that make, that me make people, uh, extraordinary. Uh, and then they're just pure gifts. Um, pure gifts on uh, whether it's again a dimension of of intelligence of of artistry. Uh, they're just amazing artists uh, from any one of the dimensions of artistry, uh, and we think of that as someone who is inspired uh, in that regard. But I think all of us have a different mix of all those skills, and and it starts from my mind. You know, and I, I wrote about this in my last, the, the follow-up to Abundance was a book called Bold. And, you know, I said, I interviewed uh, a number of the same people that you have here, uh, you know, Elon and Larry and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and others. And the, the things in common that they have is they're all driven by absolute passion. They are passionate about what they do. They believe in it. They have an optimistic view of the world. Right? All of them believe that the world is getting better at an extraordinary rate, um, and that allows them to invest and push and create. Um, the third is they're willing to experiment. They're willing to constantly experiment and iterate and try and fail and try again. Uh, the fourth uh, thing is they have an optimistic view of the future, um, uh, but a, um, a, you know, a, a belief that they can impact the future. And that what they do can truly matter, tied again to that passion. And uh, a lot of that is self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you believe you can or believe you can't, you're probably right. That's, that's really cool. It was, it was a journey, but I, you, there were really interesting points over there. Now, for the final question, I want to ask yeah. you a question. I asked Elon Musk when you brought us all to SpaceX and arranged that, yeah. that audience with Elon. And that question is, 
if we could put you in a blender and distill you and create, extract the Peter, you know, like like the essence of Peter Diamandis, what is that essence? What what is that quality about you? And I know it's a tough question. So um, first of all, I'm a nine year old kid. Right, I say this with all seriousness. I'm a I I'm driven by my child uh, passions. So that's really important for me. I I am at my best when I'm joyous and I'm having fun and I'm following the stuff I love. Um, and so that's really important. It's not work. It's play. Um, really important. The second thing is I can only back and get involved stuff that I truly believe. I've got to be completely authentic and completely uh, – it has to be something that is – I wear my, my heart – and my beliefs on my sleeve, and it's like what you see is what you get. And so that is, I, unless I believe it, I can't pursue it. I can't make it happen. I can't. I have to believe in it a hundred percent in that regard. Um, <clears throat> the third is persistence. I mean, one of my strongest skills is refusing to give up um, and just making it happen under all under any and all circumstances possible. Uh, and then the fourth is, I think, a belief that that we're living uh, in an extraordinary age, an age where anything is possible and impossible is not acceptable. Um, it's just harder. Thank you, Peter. I love that because you just wrapped up and connected the dots between so many of the other topics that you just said. Thank you. My, my pleasure. It was incredible to gain an insight into your mind. And thank you all for listening. I hope you gained some amazing ideas out of this. I know I did. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, pal. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.